thank you to David and Matthias in leading us in worship and reminding us that this is Pentecostal Sunday. And it is true, normally on, on Pentecostal on Pentecost, not Pentecostal Sunday, on Pentecost Sunday, uh, we speak on the Holy Spirit. But now that we're in the latter part of the book of Galatians, we're speaking on the Holy Spirit anyhow. The Spirit is so much a part of what Paul wants to tell us about in the book of Galatians. Have you ever heard the story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? Maybe you've read the book. Maybe you've seen the movie. Well, here's how the story goes. Dr. Jekyll is a very respected, gentle, quiet scientist. And he makes a discovery. Well, first he starts with a theory. Good scientist. Starts with a theory. And his theory is that inside every person, there is forces for good and forces for bad, for evil. And as he works on this, he makes this discovery. It's a certain potion that allows one side to come out or the other. And he develops his potion, and he actually works on it by taking it himself. And so when he takes this potion, it allows the other side to come out, which in his case is definitely the evil side. And that's when Mr. Hyde appears. So he drinks the potion, and Mr. Hyde comes out. And Mr. Hyde is not like Dr. Jekyll. He's just the opposite. Mr. Hyde is mean. He's nasty. And he gets worse every time that he comes out. But then Hyde goes back to Jekyll's laboratory, drinks the formula, and becomes Jekyll again. But something happens along the way. And Dr. Jekyll finds that he's getting more and more addicted to the Mr. Hyde part of himself. You see, as Mr. Hyde, he can do whatever he wants. And he does all sorts of, of nasty things. And it gets worse and worse. And he treats a, a, a dance hall girl, Ivy, really badly. And then one time, there's an old man in the street. And he just decides he doesn't like the old man. Waits till he goes around the corner where no one's looking. And he kills him. And he finds out that Mr. Hyde wants to take over. And so then there's a fight. Dr. Jekyll wants to get back to being Dr. Jekyll, but Mr. Hyde really likes being Mr. Hyde. And so he goes back and he, he drinks the formula and he becomes Dr. Jekyll again. And he says he's not going to do that anymore. But sure enough, it isn't long until he feels the lure of Dr. Hyde. You see, what, do, or what Mr. Hyde does, nobody knows because he turns back into Dr. Jekyll. And no one would suspect Dr. Jekyll of doing what Mr. Hyde does. Do you see what's happening? And then one time, Mr. Hyde refuses to change back. Mr. Hyde takes over. And in fact, what happens in the end is Mr. Hyde takes his own life so that he does not do any more of these evil things that he's been doing. It's a story about the struggle that's inside every one of us. It's a story of a struggle between the, the good and the evil that's in each one of us. The good and the bad, the good and the not so good, you know, depending on how you want to see yourself. <clears throat> but that struggle is there. I mean, don't you feel that struggle? I feel that struggle. The Apostle Paul felt that struggle when he wrote Romans chapter 7. He talks about doing the things he doesn't want to do and not doing the things that he does want to do. It is a struggle. 
Well, in 1931, <clears throat> Mr. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde was made into a movie, and the movie was billed as a horror film. And it was indeed a horror film. We're looking at Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 26 today. Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 26. If you have your Bible, you can take it out. You read your Bible on a device, that's fine. If you don't have a Bible, we give away Bibles. It's a welcome table. You can get one there. Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 26. And Paul gives insight into this struggle. It's a struggle that each one of us has. And you know what? It's a struggle of desire. The NLT, New Living Translation, says craving. That's the struggle that we have. And this passage that we're going to look at is a passage of contrast, contrasting life in the spirit and life in the flesh. And even, even in the contrasts in this passage, they're really all about the spirit because even though it's talking about the flesh, it's still highlighting the opposite, which is life in the spirit. And today I'm talking about freedom to live by the Spirit. Galatians is all about freedom. But as we made clear last week, Paul has a definition of freedom he wants to give us. And that, for a lot of us, would mean we need to modify our definition of freedom. And today we're going to talk about freedom to live by the Spirit. We need to know this. The Holy Spirit uses desires to drive change in our lives. The Holy Spirit uses desires to drive change in our lives. Change comes as the desires of our heart change. Change comes from the inside out. With a new heart, a renewed heart, we see change in our outward behavior. Well, as we come to the passage, you know, we can ask this question. How does the Holy Spirit desires drive change in our lives? How do Holy Spirit desires drive change in our lives? Well, here's where Paul starts. Spirit desires cancel the desire of the flesh, so walk by the Spirit. Spirit desires cancel the desire of the flesh, so walk by the Spirit. Look at verse 16. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. To keep you from doing the things you want to do. Do you see that word desire there? Do you see how desire is the main topic in these two verses? Three times the word desire is repeated in just two verses. Three times. And the first thing that we need to note as we come to this is that desire is not always a bad thing. I mean, sometimes Christians miss the point and they consider desire to be a bad thing. But that's not true. I mean, Paul doesn't make that assumption when he writes this passage. In fact, he contrasts the desires of the flesh and the desires of the spirit. Desire is important. This positive view of desire really came home to me when I read a book by John Piper called Desiring God. And the subtitle is Confessions of a Christian Hedonist. A hedonist is someone who seeks pleasure. So I admit that the subtitle caught my attention first. Confessions of a Christian Hedonist. But the point is desire can be positive. We can have positive desires like desiring God. That's positive, don't you think? That's a positive desire. 
The fact is there's a conflict in the Christian life and there's a way of victory. Now, we've been looking at the book of Galatians. And the book of Galatians is written because Paul, who planted the church there, has heard that there are certain people who are um, Judaizers, legalists, who have come in, and they would, they would say, okay, there's a conflict in the Christian life. They would admit that. And they would say, there is a, a way of victory. And they'd say, this is the way of victory. Follow these rules. Follow these laws. This is how you're going to get victory over your flesh. This is how you do it. And Paul is writing to say, no, that's wrong. There's a conflict in the Christian life, and there's a way of Christian victory. When we come to Jesus and we give our lives to him, the Holy Spirit comes into our lives, and what happens? What happens is there's now a war in our lives, a war between the desires of the Spirit and the desires of our old nature. The Holy Spirit introduces this war in our lives. Our new nature in Christ and Holy Spirit desires, the desires that the Spirit puts within us is at war with the old desires of our old life. Look at the word flesh at the end of verse 16. Paul writes, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now Paul uses the word flesh in different ways in the book of Galatians. So flesh sometimes refers to our human body. We looked at that already. Uh, Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, which means my everyday life, my walking around life, my way of life, whatever happens in my life, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So that's one of the ways that Paul uses the word flesh, meaning your everyday life. That's not the way he uses it here. But I do want to point out that the body is good. God created us. The body is good. But when Paul is talking about the flesh in this passage, he uses it in a different ways. A way that is uh, talking about our fallen nature, our sinful nature. And that's the contrast that we have here. When we were in uh, Abidjan, West Africa, I met a, a, a black man who had come there. He was a new missionary. And he was telling me an experience that he had. He said on the second day that he was there, he went out and he was trying to meet his neighbors. And he talked to one neighbor and the neighbor said, you're an American. And he said, well, how do you know that? He said, is it, is it my accent? You can hear my accent? And the neighbor said, no, it's the way you walk. You walk like an American. Well, that's what our passage is talking about here. It's talking about walking. Look what Paul says at the head of the passage. Walk by the Spirit. Verse 16. It's the physical act of walking, but it's used figuratively to refer to a general personal contact, the, the way we live our life, everyday life, our lifestyle, living by the Spirit and by the influence of the Spirit, His desires in your life. We cannot overcome the flesh by our own will power. And you see, that's where the legalists, everything fell down. 
They would just make more laws. But the laws don't give the power to keep them. We cannot overcome the flesh by our own will. The legalists using the law say, well, we can. You know, here's, here's the rules that we need to keep. But our greatest effort may make a difference, but it won't give us victory. We can't win the battle on our own strength and our own will power. We need the Holy Spirit who is a person, not just a force, not just a divine influence, but a person. We need the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Spirit, meaning Holy Spirit, is mentioned seven times in these few verses. Seven times. Paul is focusing on the Holy Spirit and his work in our lives. The solution is not to set up our will against the flesh, our fallen human nature, but to surrender our will to the Holy Spirit. The solution is not to set up our will against the flesh, but to surrender our will to the Holy Spirit. So Paul talks about this in in Ephesians, and he talks about it as being filled with the Spirit. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. It means to be controlled by the Spirit. And that's what Paul is leading us to here. The Holy Spirit is our focus and not our sin. When we walk by the Spirit, we're filled with the desires of the Spirit. And this is the solution to the war within us, a war which continues our whole life. But this is the solution, the Holy Spirit at work in our lives, not more rules for ourselves. The Spirit and the flesh are in sharp opposition to one another. As Christians, we have these two powers in us. We have the flesh and we have the Spirit. We have our sinful nature and we have the Spirit. And there's no reconciling these two. One wins or the other wins on like a day-to-day basis or over a lifetime basis. Which will power our desire? The flesh or the spirit? The more the spirit desires grow in us, the more the flesh desires are canceled or displaced. Spirit desires cancel the desire of the flesh. So, says Paul, walk by the spirit. And then he continues. With spirit desires, we are led by the spirit. Look at verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So the Spirit within us is more powerful than the law or any any number of rules that we can make up for ourselves. The law points out our shortcomings, but the law has no power to lead us to obey. The law just shows us where we fall short. The law is powerless when it comes to change, but the Holy Spirit is powerful. The Spirit leads us like a shepherd leads his sheep, putting his desires into our heart over and against the desires of the flesh. And Paul underscores this reality by giving a contrast between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. And as we look at this, we need to remember the focus is on the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Paul is saying, not that, but this. Not that, but this. Not that, works of the flesh, but this, fruit of the Spirit. 
This is an illustration that Paul is using in his ongoing argument in the book of Galatians. And so I'm just going to give a few explanations. Not that. First of all, works of the flesh. Galatians 5, 19 to 21. Now I should note that the Judaizers would agree with Paul on some of this. They would agree that these are works of the flesh. Look how Paul starts, verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Why are they evident? Because everybody agrees. Paul agrees. The Judaizers against whom he's writing, they would agree as well. These are things that we don't want to be doing. And as followers of God, followers of Jesus, we don't want to be doing these things. They would agree with that. Now the works of the flesh are evident. But the approach of the Judaizers, again, was to bring up the law. You just follow the law and you're not going to do that. And Paul's saying, well, you can bring up the law and it'll convict you about all that but it won't give you the power that you need to walk in a different way. Commentators, when they come to this passage, generally give four categories. So I'm going to give you the four categories uh, this morning. The first is sensual sins, verse 19. So the first mention is sexual immorality, and of course we automatically think of adultery, but it's a really general kind of word that includes all sorts of sexual immorality. It's not just adultery. There's impurity, like uncleanness. It refers to a filthiness of heart and mind. It makes a person defiled. An unclean person sees dirt in everything. Think of like dirty mind. Sensuality, also translated debauchery and lasciviousness. Not words I use in my everyday vocabulary, and I don't imagine you do either. But the idea is a wanton or wasteful lifestyle or even degradation. And the question is, are you feeling convicted yet? The law will convict you of these things, but the law will not help you overcome them. Second category, superstitious or religious sins. Verse 20, idolatry. Anything that's more important in your life than God is idolatry. It doesn't have to be little wood or stone gods. Ezekiel talks about idols of the heart. Anything that's more important in your life than God leads to idolatry. It's often been said, we are to worship God, love people, and use things, but too often we love things, use people, and forget about God. That's idolatry. Idolatry in practice. And then there's sorcery, which includes witchcraft, occult, uh, tampering with the powers of evil, um, would include many things, even tarot cards, horoscope and, horoscope and things like that. Well, are you feeling convicted yet? Because the law will convict you about these things. But the law cannot help you overcome them. Third category, social sins. And Paul makes this a larger category because... Because that's his concern as he moves on in the book of Galatians. Social and our relationships with each other. Social sins lead to the breakdown of personal relationships. Now, I don't think we need a definition for each one of these. I think they're fairly straightforward. Let me read them. Enmity or uh, hatred. Strife or discord. Jealousy. Fits of rage. Rivalries or selfish ambition. Dissensions. Divisions or factions and envy. I mean, that's, that's enough to get the idea, don't you think? 
Are you feeling convicted yet? I mean, who can't say? Who can say that, that they've not sinned in, at some time in one of these ways in relationships? The law will convict you of these things, but not help you overcome them. One last category. The last category is drinking sins. Verse 21, first is drunkenness. So let me make it clear that it's drunkenness. It's the abuse of alcohol that's been referred to. It's not drinking wine or alcoholic beverages. It's drunkenness. Orgies or carousing. Okay, I had to look that one up. I had an idea, but I had to look it up. And this is what I got. A social gathering involving unrestrained indulgence, especially sexual activity and drinking, a secret rite in the cults of ancient Greek or Roman deities, typically involving frenzied singing, dancing, drinking, and sexual activity. So, I mean, you get the idea. And certainly, the people reading Paul's letter would know what he's talking about and all that goes along with it. Are you feeling convicted yet? The law will convict you of these things, but not help you to overcome them. And Paul finishes saying this, and things like these. So the list is not exhaustive. I mean, if you got to this point and you're thinking, oh, that's not me, that's not me. No, I'm not convicted about that. That's not me. Well, that's not all there is. There's a whole lot more. Paul is giving you examples. We are all implicated in this. The list is not exhaustive. It's an illustration of the works of the flesh. Now look what Paul says in verse 21. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, will not inherit heaven. Uh, that's stunning. That is stunning. In view of the fact, when you look at this whole list, like every one of us is implicated. And then he says, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, who gets into heaven then? Who gets into the kingdom of God? Well, we do only through Jesus. But when Paul says those who do such things, it refers to an habitual lifestyle. It's, it's a, a continuous way of living is what he's talking about. He's not talking about lapsing into occasional sins, but he's talking about a way of living. The NIV translation is helpful. It says those who live like this, or the NLT says anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. Not that. I mean, Paul, I think Paul is hoping that by the time we get to the end of this list, we are grieving about what he's talking about. Not that, not works of the flesh. And that now we are longing for what he's going to say in terms of this. Not that, works of the flesh, but this, fruit of the Spirit. Not that, but this. Verses 22 and 23 give us nine fruits of the Spirit, and they're listed here. I'm going to read this. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Nobody, nobody would say, oh, don't have those things. Against such things, there's no law. We could do a nine-week preaching series on each one of these fruit of the Spirit. But today I'm going to treat them as examples Paul wants to give us as he's making his point. 
Now, fruit is often used in Scripture to indicate what God expects of his people by way of character. So fruit refers to the character, your character. Now, Jesus also implied the character of a life can be determined by seeing its fruit. In uh, Matthew chapter 7, the test for false prophets is, among other things, the kind of life that they live. So, I mean, Matthew 7, 1 says, don't judge lest you be judged by the same judgment with which you judge others. So we take that as, or don't judge, period. What it means is, don't judge someone else's heart because you can't possibly know what's happening in their heart. Only God knows that. But in the same chapter, a little later on, Jesus said, look at their fruits. That's how you know what's happening in their hearts. Look how they're living their life. Jesus encouraged fruit inspection and discouraged judgment. Well, it's interesting that Paul uses a singular word, fruit, not fruits. Did you notice that? There are nine, but he says fruit of the Spirit. Why would he do that? Well, I think it's because all true Christians have all fruit of the Spirit. But we need the Holy Spirit to bring the fruit into our lives, to, to grow it into our lives. We cannot produce godliness apart from the Spirit. It comes from Him. The Spirit must be there, empowering us, working in our lives for these fruit to show up. It's interesting. While we were in Africa, uh, we found a little snake in our bedroom which is not what you want to find, especially when it's a spitting cobra. Um, we managed to capture it and uh, took it to a missionary colleague who liked to collect snakes. Not something I wanted to do. So we took the snake to him, and he took it home, and he, he wanted to preserve the snake because it really was beautiful. It was a gorgeous snake, just small, but the size of my finger. But when the head went up and, and the hood puffed, puffed out, it looked like it had two eyes there. So he wanted to preserve it, and he put it into a preservative, and the snake died in the preservative. And he said to me, when it died, the colors all disappeared because the heart stopped beating. That's what it's like with the fruit of the Spirit. If you don't have the Spirit, you don't get the fruit. But when you have the Spirit, you have the new heart that Jesus has given you, and the Spirit is in you and working in your life, it's like that beautiful snake that had the beautiful colors when his heart was beating. But when the heart stopped, the colors were gone. The Spirit is essential to the fruit of the Spirit. You can't take this and say, all right, I'm going to work on joy today. No, I think I better work on yeah, patience. That's a really good one, patience. The Spirit works on us. It's singular because all true Christians have all fruit of the Spirit, and the Holy Spirit in your life is working not just on this one or that one, but on all of the fruit to bring them out in your life. The fruit of the Spirit is like a diamond. I think a number of you probably have a diamond on your finger. It's like a diamond. If you look at a diamond, there are different facets of a diamond. It's not just one facet. You're not just looking at one, but they all go together to make up that diamond. Well, it's the same way with the fruit of the Spirit. They all go together 
to make the fruit of the Spirit. It's not, it's not choosing one facet over the other, but it's all of them. The Spirit comes into our hearts, changes our hearts, and he wants to bring all of this fruit into our lives and continues to grow this fruit in our lives as we continue to live our life day to day to day to day. And the job's not done until the day we die. It's a lifelong process of the Spirit working within us. Since these qualities are the fruit of the Spirit, I mean, it's self-evident that legalism and obedience to the law, it, it can't originate them, it can't produce them, it can't continue to grow them in our lives. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. Well, Paul ends this section telling us why we can choose this over that. Look at verse 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. Look at the verb. Have crucified. It's in the perfect tense. It's an action that started and finished in the past, but continues to influence the present. Have crucified. It's not, you need to crucify. Crucify the flesh. Are you crucifying the flesh today? You got to crucify the flesh. That's not what he's saying. Have crucified. And in fact, in the other verses that talk about this, they say, have been crucified. When you come to Jesus, there's some sense known to God where you're on the cross with Jesus. And you have been crucified with him. And Paul is saying you do that willingly in this verse. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desire. Have crucified. It's perfect. It's, it's a done deal. You don't need to crucify again and again. You have been crucified. When you come to Jesus and give your life to him, you're crucified with Christ. You've crucified the flesh and his passions and desire. The old life, the old you, has been put to death. It's a continuous process in that this is going on in your life, but that have crucified has happened. And someone pointed out the fact that unlike the French guillotine, or the English line you up and shoot you, firing squad, being crucified took a while. So have crucified, but there is an ongoing struggle. But that reality is there when you come to Jesus. Have those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desire. Our focus is not on crucifying the flesh, the sinful nature and desires. But our focus is on pursuing our new desires given to us by the Holy Spirit. And the result is the fruit of the Spirit in our lives is it works powerfully in our lives. So here's the bottom line. Is that when you come to Jesus, when you give your life to Jesus, he gives you a new life. When Jesus intersects your life, change comes into your life. Because when you get Jesus, you get the Holy Spirit. And he brings the war within, but it's a good war. 
It brings change into your life. Change is inevitable when you come to Jesus. With spirit desires, we're led by the spirit living in his power. Paul continues, spirit desires keep us in step with the spirit. Verse 25, if we live by the spirit, let us also keep in step with the spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This is Paul's conclusion to this section. Keep in step with the Spirit, verse 25, uses a different verb than walk by the Spirit, verse 16, where we started. Remember, walk by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. In both verses, the verbs are that present active continuous. So we are participating, actively participating with what the Spirit is doing in our lives. Embracing his desires, the desires of the the Spirit, which he, by grace, is putting in our hearts. Both these verses, 16 and 25, refer to Christian behavior, but in different ways. So the first verb in 16, walk by the Spirit, it's more personal, referring to personal behavior. And in 25, keep in step with the Spirit, is more social. It's the idea of walking in rank, something we do together. The meaning is that we keep in step together as brothers and sisters in Christ. We keep in step together with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the one setting the pace and the direction. And we are stepping along with him. But we are stepping along with him, with each other. Do you see the difference? It's a together kind of thing. We're not in this thing of of walking our Christian walk all by ourselves, And we were never meant to be. We have each other. We can encourage each other and walk with each other as we walk with Jesus. Paul's making the point before going to his next section, we'll come to next week, a section dealing with relationships, looking at this dimension of living in the spirit, the social dimension of spirit desires. You know, as I read this passage, I think of a couple of illustrations. One of the illustrations is we lived in a small town called Angus. Angus is right beside a big military base, a training base called Borden Angus because you get the town, you got the base. Anybody who's been in the military knows Borden and Angus. Well, sometimes I would go on to the base, uh, perhaps to visit someone from our church, or they had a swimming pool there, and it was open occasionally to the public, so I would go on to the base. And on the base would be these signs that said that the people, the soldiers who are marching, they said, marching troops have priority. Big signs as you drive along. Marching troops have priority. And sure enough, any number of times I had to stop and I had to let these marching troops go by. Usually a group of 12 to 15 people. One person is the leader. And then two people marching side by side. And I'd sit there in my car, and I'd watch them. And it was really incredible. Of course, they spent hours practicing this. It was incredible. They would march by, and they were perfectly in time, one with the other. I mean perfect in time with each other, and perfectly in time with the leader, keeping in step with one another. In our last house in St. Hubert, South Shore, Montreal, I could sit in my... um, my back porch or just sit in my kitchen and look out my, my back door. And there's this, this big regional high school. There's a parking lot 
a big lawn, and then uh, this large regional high school. And during COVID, a local karate club would come to practice on that big lawn because they could practice but still be distanced, spread out. And when they did really well, when the students were doing really well, everybody did everything, all the actions, all together. And they'd be looking at the sensei, the guy up front who's the teacher, the leader, and they'd be doing his actions exactly as he did them. Well, that's the idea that Paul brings to us here in this passage, keeping in step. When spirit desires rule our hearts together, we are in step with the Holy Spirit and in step with each other. When spirit desires rule our hearts together, we are in step with the Holy Spirit and in step with each other, just like those marching soldiers or like those karate students. So here's our summary. what Paul is saying. Spirit desires, the desires the Holy Spirit puts in our heart. Spirit desires cancel the desire of the flesh, so walk by the Spirit. Two, with spirit desires, we are led by the Spirit. And three, spirit desires keep us in step with the Spirit. So our ongoing relationship with Christ is summarized in these expressions. Walk by the Spirit, verse 16. Led by the Spirit, verse 18. Keep in step with the Spirit, verse 25. So the Spirit helps us to personalize what Jesus did for us on the cross. And we're going to celebrate that very shortly as we come to communion. Our ongoing relationship with Christ is personalized by the help of the Holy Spirit. So your sins are forgiven by the death of Jesus on the cross. Our sin, our shame, our, our guilt attached to the cross with Jesus. But that's not all. There's so much more that we have in the death of Jesus Christ. That is the beginning. There is so much more. And this passage and the whole book of Galatians is undergirded by the cross of Christ and what we have in the death of Jesus on the cross. His cross is in the background of what Paul is saying. Look at this quote by Warren Wearsby, which we should get up there. Warren Wearsby said, What God the Father planned for you and God the Son purchased for you in the cross, God the Spirit personalizes for you and applies to your life as you yield to him. Isn't that great? That's wonderful. What God the Father planned for you, God the Son purchased for you on the cross, God the Spirit personalizes for you and applies to your life as you yield to him. Our desires are changed as we walk by the Spirit. We're led by Him. We keep in step with Him. The desires of the Spirit become stronger, and the desires of the flesh become weaker. It's rooted in the cross of Jesus Christ and what He has done for us, giving us new life. We give our life to Jesus. He gives us a new life, and it comes with the Holy Spirit working in our lives. Well, let's consider a couple of applications. First, here's a question for you. Do you believe that the Holy Spirit is sufficient to guide us in the way of Jesus? Think about it. Do you believe the Holy Spirit is sufficient to guide us in the way of Jesus? You know, we need to critically analyze. If you grew up in the church, we need to critically analyze the laws that we grew up with. 
in a small conservative Baptist church where I grew up in the 1950s and 60s, we believed true Christians don't smoke, don't drink, and don't go to movies. I mean, the last one is a laugh, but it's before we all had televisions in our homes. But that was very common in the 50s and the 60s. Well, that's wrong. That's false. That doesn't define a true Christian. But think about this. Are we determined to impose laws on new believers, or can we trust the Holy Spirit to point them to Jesus, the Word of God, and living for Jesus? I was really challenged by this when I was in university. I read a book produced by InterVarsity Press. And it was a book, uh, it was an autobiography written by a woman who was a professor at a university. And uh, she was very much into the hippie lifestyle, free sex, free booze, free drugs. And some friends had shared their faith with her, and she listened and thought about it. And eventually, she came to the point of giving her life to Jesus. But when she first did that, she didn't quite know all of what that meant. Well, that's okay. That's okay. She wasn't exactly sure what it meant to call Jesus Lord, but, I mean, that's okay, too. Her friends did not give her a list of rules of what she now needed to do because she was a Christian. They just pointed her to Jesus. Her friends did not criticize her. They just loved her as a sister in Christ, and the Holy Spirit worked in her life. And she says in her story, as the Holy Spirit worked in her life, one of the first things that the Holy Spirit said to her was, you just stop sleeping around with all those men. And for her, it was like, what? What's the problem with that? Because she was part of the hippie culture. She was part of the, the free sex, so it doesn't matter. But the Holy Spirit worked in her life. This is her testimony. And she realized she had to change. Then the Holy Spirit continued to work about other things in her life. I believe the Holy Spirit is powerful enough to work in the life of a new Christian and I can trust the Holy Spirit. I don't need to give that new believer a long list of rules that they need to follow. Because if they're truly following Jesus and the Spirit, they'll have the Spirit in their life and the Spirit will talk to them and the Spirit will bring change into their life on his schedule, not mine. So one more application, conflict in the church. Well, okay, I'm bringing this up again because the Apostle Paul brings it up again. We can have disagreements and differences of opinion, but if we're biting and devouring one another, verse 15, if we're conceited and provoking one another and envying one another, verse 26, these are works of the flesh. Even as followers of Jesus, this can happen. I've seen it happen in different churches. This can happen. But these are works of the flesh. And when we see this happening, and it does from time to time, we need to repent. It should make us incredibly sad to see anything like that happening in our church or other churches. And when we see it happening, we need to repent. We turn from the works of the flesh. When we're all in step with the Spirit, we will be in step with one another. That's a biblical principle. When we're all in step with the Spirit, we will be in step with one another. Well, you know, a question might be that can we nurture this work of the Holy Spirit in our lives without being legalistic and making more rules, I really want to say this. Because if you buy this all, and I hope you do, you might say, oh, well, then 
we don't need the spiritual disciplines or this or that. Or if anybody says, I really want to read my Bible more, you say, oh, that's legalistic. Not necessarily. Can we nurture this work of the Spirit in our lives without being legalistic and making more real? So I think we can. I mean, prayer is important. It's talking to God. It's a conversation with God. It's growing that relationship with God. Worship and worship together is essential to nurture our spiritual life. Reading God's Word, the Bible, having our minds nurtured by the Holy Spirit in these different ways. I mean, these are important. The Holy Spirit, we use these to develop his desires more and more in our lives. But this is what's important. We need to see this, all the spiritual disciplines, as an invitation, not a new set of rules. Can you get that? We need to see this as an invitation, not a new set of rules. Billy Graham wrote a book on the Holy Spirit. And in the book, he tells a story about an Inuit and his two dogs. And as the story goes, uh, the, the Inuit fisherman would come to town, and he would bring his two dogs with him on Saturdays. And in the market square, in the afternoon, he would set up his dogs, and people would gather around because he would initiate a dog fight between his two dogs. And he would take bets from all the people. And one Saturday, the two dogs, one was white, one was black. One Saturday, the white dog would win. And one Saturday, the black dog would win. And this went on, but the fishermen always won. And so finally, someone said to him, okay, you've got to tell us, how do you know which dog is going to win? And the fisherman said, okay, it's really very simple. During the week, I give one more to eat and the other, I give a lot less to eat. And the stronger one always wins. And that's the way it is in our life in the Spirit. Let's pray together. We're coming to communion now to celebrate the cross of Jesus. So we'll just spend a moment of quiet. Think about this passage, the things that I've been saying this is a time. I mean, there might be things in your heart and your mind that the Spirit's bringing to mind, and you may need to confess those things and agree with God that they're wrong and receive His forgiveness. And that's good. The Spirit will do that in our lives. But then let your focus continue on to what the Spirit wants to continue to do in your lives, bringing in you the fruit of the Spirit. So just take a moment of quiet, prepare our hearts to participate in the Lord's table.